Thanks for pulling. There's a song, Your Mercy. You guys pulled that out just for me, didn't you? Thank you. It's such a great tune. So, morning, church. Good to see you guys. Acts 24. Turn your Bibles there if you would. Thank you, um, Davey, for facilitating the, uh, the small group announcements. I know some of them were maybe a little hard to hear. That's why uh, after about 10.15 this morning, you're going to have a chance to connect with all the small groups and find out a little bit more information. Uh, babe, will you uh, just give me a little shout out, five minutes, about 10, 10, 10, 15, so I can wrap. Oh, I, I know you would. That's, she was just so eager to jump on that, right? Like 10, 10, 15, just yell out five minutes. Uh, because it's a really kind of a two-part message today, so whatever I don't cover this morning, we can tackle next week if the, if the Lord should not tarry, right? Amen. Uh, we might make it next week, but you know we'll get as far as we can this week. So um, uh, thank you, Davey, for, and all the small groups. Thank you for just uh, helping us go deeper. If you guys haven't heard, uh, three things in order to really grow in your faith and, and really call Missio Day your home, three things I think are really required. Number one, involvement in a small group. You've got to have some sort of opportunity to live out your faith with others outside of Sunday morning. This is easy. Rubbing elbows with somebody else in a small group, that's a little bit more difficult. Uh, serving and giving. I think those are the three things. In order for God to do what he wants to do, I think when you find that sweet spot between those three things, giving, serving, and involvement in a small group, you're, you're dialed in. So that's just my way of encouraging you, do all three of those things, three things, right? Giving, serving, and get involved in a small group. So um, I think those are wonderful, wonderful opportunities. And we got great, great groups meeting, great facilitators. So thank you for your participation in, in, the, in the gospel. So Acts 24, turn there in your Bible, if you would. Um, how many of you have experienced being attacked, being scrutinized, being judged, being condemned by somebody, family member or friends. Mary said, who hasn't, right? Um, have you ever felt like you were on trial for something that you may be innocent of, blameless? Um, I think we can, we can all relate with that. And maybe it's, it's on a large scale level, maybe it's just on a, on a personal level. Level. It is, it's a difficult thing to go through when you feel like you're on trial. Um, when you're being scrutinized for something you didn't say or do, when you're feeling judged uh, for something you said or, or didn't say or didn't do. And this conversation has come up this past week and uh, several opportunities for me to interact with people and encourage them um, because there's, there's two truths that are really going to guide our discussion this morning. I want you to write these two words down. Um, acquitted, write down that word acquitted. What does that mean when I say acquitted? Uh, anyone want to throw out a, a, just a definition? What does it mean to be acquitted? Found not guilty. Probably the best way to summarize it, to be found not guilty. Second word I want you to write down is advocate. Advocate. What's an advocate? Someone who fights for you. So here's what's amazing is there's one section in Scripture I want you to write down. Look at it later, but just trust your pastor. I know that's hard to do. Trust your pastor. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John marries those two ideas together in two verses. He says, we have an advocate, and his name is 
you guys all get bonus points today. Good job. His name is Jesus, who becomes the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big, big, heavy theological word. What does that mean? He takes our guilt upon himself. So what John is saying, and he's concerned about how these truths impact our daily walk, it means this. Because of Jesus, you have been declared not guilty, and greater yet is the reality of that fact that we have an advocate who stood in our place. And not only did it one time, but continues to be our advocate forever and for all eternity. Can I get an amen from somebody? We need to be reminded of this because our relationships, they're fickle. They're all over the place. We, we have a hard time not listening to the voices around us and maybe even the voice from within that continues to almost speak words not of freedom but of, of bondage condemning criticism, right? How many of you wrestle with not just the voices outside that are perhaps criticizing you, but that inner voice that criticizes you? And, and just even this past Friday morning, we talked about the woman caught in the act of adultery, John chapter 8, where, you know, Jesus is with this woman who's literally pulled from the bed of her lover, and all these guys are just ready to stone her to death because of her sin. And Jesus basically says, hey, if you're perfect and you're here without sin, go ahead and kill her. And they all drop their stones and leave because none of them could say that they're in that place of just perfect living and lifestyle. And then it's just Jesus and her, right? Awkward. And uh, he says to her, where are those that are going to condemn you? And she says, they're not here, right? So the outside voices are gone, but there's still that inward con you know, condemnation. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Those are the words of an advocate. Those are the words of, of a God who says, I know everything about you, yet I still choose to love you. And because of Jesus, we have been acquitted on the cross. He died for us in our place. And now because of that, you now need to walk around with this reality that I have a defender. I have an advocate. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Acts 24, we, we preface this because Paul is on trial, literally. He's on trial, and he's standing in a courtroom surrounded by people that don't like him. They want him gone. They want him dead. And I'm going to ask you, how would you feel if you were in Paul's shoes? How would you feel if there was just a room of seething, scathing, scrutinizing people that just don't want you to exist. Paul stands in this room, confident, calm, cheerful. How does he do this? How, how do you stand in the midst of such criticism and condemnation? When you're on trial for things that you may have not have said or done, which is what you're going to see with Paul, how do you handle yourself? So I think there's a word here for us. But let me also just say to you, um, Jesus, you know, he says confounding things, confusing things, complicated things. Matthew 11, let this serve as something for us as we talk through Acts 24 this morning. Matthew chapter 11, uh, 5, verses 11 and 12. We have the verse up here. It's from the Beatitudes. And he finishes the Beatitudes with these words. Matthew 5, verses 11 
and 12. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it sounds like everything I just told you. How do you handle yourself when there's this, these false accusations flying your way on account of Jesus? And that's the key. You shouldn't feel like, oh God, why am I being persecuted when you act like a bozo? Can I get an amen from, that, from, that, from anybody? When you're just acting like a jerk, you know what? You're going to be accused for being a jerk. But when you're accused falsely, especially on behalf of the, the name of Jesus, Jesus says, be happy about that. Why? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a way to go out on the Sermon on the Mount, especially when it comes to this section on the Beatitudes. Happy are th am I when I'm being assaulted like this? Because I have a feeling Jesus is saying, and here's how I always summarize it, God knows. God knows what you're going through. God knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in your life. Don't forsake the great judge over all who sees all. Right? He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You don't have to avenge yourself. Amen? You don't have to, you don't have to fight. You don't have to. You have a defender. You have an advocate. Paul's going to rely on this defender and this advocate during this very intense time. When you think, like, can it get any worse for Paul? It does get worse. Acts 24. Let's read the passage. We're going to talk about two things this morning. There's a prosecution, and then there's a defense. So some of you that like lawyer, legal, courtroom-type dramas, you got it. There's the prosecution, there's the defense, and then next week we'll save the verdict, the response from the governor. And that's going to be a really, really important message next week. So Acts 24, starting at verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. So introduction, right? Greetings, salutations, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe a much, we'll, bit much, we'll talk about that. Verse five, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. And we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews who were also there with them joined in the attack and just said, yeah, he's right, and asserting that these things were so. So there's the accusations, there's the prosecution. Verse 10, and when uh, the governor nodded for Paul to speak, he responds, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Circle that word cheerfully. 
Matthew 5, <laughs> right? Rejoice. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, i.e. future judgment. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to be present today before you to make this accusation if they should have anything against me, but they're not here. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than, and this is Paul saying, if I'm guilty of anything, here it is, that I made one statement, I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts. Two things, prosecution defense. What's the prosecution all about? Clever attacks. It's amazing how creative people will get when they want to just get rid of you, even though they don't have a leg to stand on. They come up with all sorts of clever attacks. So you go back to verse 1. Notice this. Quite the religious hierarchy gathered. Right? You got Ananias, who was the one that Paul blurted out, you whitewashed wall. Remember that total like burn? Yeah, that happened. So... Ananias is probably still ticked at Paul, so he's like, I'll go to, to, to this courtroom and accuse Paul. So Ananias is there, Pharisees are there, Sadducees are there. Then you have uh, Felix, who's the governor, and then you've got Tertullus, who is the professional lawyer representing the, the religious hierarchy. Now, let's just talk about some of these characters. Like I said, Ananias is still ticked for the way Paul treated him. So he's a little, he's a little bit venge, vengeful, right? The Pharisees, they're, they're like, hey, at least the guy believes in the resurrection. We, we, we like this about him. The Sadducees can't stand Paul. And then there's Felix, this governor. Felix is an interesting dude. We're going to unpack a little bit more about Felix, Felix next week. But Felix was this guy who succeeded Pontius Pilate. So he comes right after Pontius Pilate. And he was once a slave, but now he's governor of the region, the first slave in history to assume such a position in government. Felix was not a nice guy. If he didn't like you, he'd get his, his guys together and you would be uh, executed. Uh, his married life, we'll talk about that next week because Drusilla, his third wife, is going to come into play next week. No one liked Felix, which is interesting because look in verses 1 through 4. It's all sorts of flattery going on with this guy. Why? Because Tertullus was more of a professional speaker than he was a lawyer. Now, you know your argument's weak when you have to hire an entertainer to do, the, to do your bidding, 
right? So Tertullus comes out, and this guy was so eloquent. He was smooth. He just had, he probably wore that, you know, that three-piece toga that was so hot in the, in the Middle East at the time, and, you know, drove around in that Cadillac chariot of his, and, he, you know, he's just, he was just that guy, right? You, you bring a name in, and he really, he, he knew law, but he was better when it came to just his, his posture and his presentation. And he comes right out, and he says to, to this guy, right, like, you are amazing, Felix, even though everyone knew he wasn't. You're amazing. And so when you can't win the case, win over your judge, right? That's the philosophy. You're amazing. What you've done for our community is just exceptional. We're so grateful that you're... And everyone just in the room just knows this is so not true. You know what this is called? Flattery. When you rely on flattery, that is a dangerous thing. The, the, the Proverbs talk about flattery. If you tr trample in the realm of flattery, you lay a net, not just for yourself, but for the other person that you flatter. Proverbs 25, Proverbs 29. We ought to be careful with flattery because it is a self-destructive thing we tend to lean on when it comes to our relationships. What's wrong with flattery? You're saying to someone's face that you would never say to them behind their back. It's a form of lying. And it's, 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 it's relationship destructive. Why? Because it looks like encouragement, but it's really selfish because it's serving your self-interest at the expense of somebody else. I know too many people who flatter and don't mean it. There's a whole different message for flattery. I won't go into it this morning, but I want to just give you just a, a, a word. If you're a flatterer and you say things to people, about people, to people, and your motivation is self-interest, that is destructive not only for your soul, but for the relationship. Flattery is a dangerous thing that sometimes we don't talk about too much, but it is the language of a society that puts self-interest above all things. And like I said, it, it looks like encouragement on the outside, but let me just phrase it this way. Encouragement is truth spoken from a loving motive to increase faith and hope in the hearer. That's encouragement. But flattery is a lie masquerading as encouragement from a selfish motive to manipulate the hearer in order to achieve the flatterer's covert purpose. Do you guys understand? We are men and women who are of the truth, and we traffic in the truth, and we don't want to use flattery as a mechanism and bring about destructiveness to our relationships. So will you walk in the light with me and be, and be truthful? Will we be honest? Will we not lean on flattery, flattery to serve our purposes? Because you're going to see Paul do the exact opposite here in a moment. So we'll come back to, to flattery or what to do better than flattery, okay? So there's flattery. But the second thing that they rely on is falsehood. There are four charges leveled against Paul that are all false. So Paul's standing here and he's receiving this message. And what are those four things? The, the, that they are, uh, he's being accused of being a disease presence. He's being accused of a, being a political menace. 
He's being accused of being a religious heretic. And lastly, he's being accused of being a blasphemous fanatic. So let's just, let's just talk through these. So notice, go to verse 5. For we have found this man a real pest. You ever been called a pest in your life? I was called that all the time. I thought that was my name, literally growing up. I thought my name was pest. I was called pest so much by my parents because I was a pest, right? Pest connotates plague. Plague, uh, plague connotates disease. And what these guys are saying, and talk about a low blow right out of the gate. They're like, this guy is nothing but an infectious disease infecting people's lives. What a, what a great way to go out, and you're just standing there just receiving this. So Paul, you're a pest. Secondly, you're a political menace. Look what it says in verse 5. We have found this man to be a pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, I kind of like this, the, the exaggeration here because Paul's going, I'm glad you guys think my impact is so far-reaching. I mean, it is pretty powerful what Paul has been able to participate in and the influence and impact of, of his work for the gospel. But in no place can it be shown that Paul was this political agitator. He himself being a Roman citizen, there was nothing that he was trying to do to subvert the Roman Empire. He was a Roman citizen. He obeyed all the laws. He honored the kings and the governors. This is a guy who was a good citizen. So he's like, show me proof. It's not there. So he's not this political menace. Number three, he's a religious heretic. See, the Romans knew that there's this stream of false messiahs coming on the scene. So after the time of Jesus to, the, to this time, there's been about three decades that have passed since Christ was crucified, and there's all sorts of false messiahs that are arriving on the scene, wreaking havoc, and they're trying to whip up people into this, this hysteria. And, and the Romans were concerned about these fringe movements. But Paul sits here and goes, Really? A sect of the Nazarenes? We'll talk about what that means. He's like, yeah, not true, but where's the, where's the evidence that I've stirred anybody up into some sort of you know, hysteria? It's not there. And then the last thing is what happens at the temple. He says, I'm a, bl a, bl a blasphemous fanatic. Look what they say. He says, they say they're, uh, and he even tried to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. Now, here's the good news, you guys. None of these things stick. None of them stick. Why? Because Paul knew the truth in his heart. He could stand before God with a clean conscience. He's blameless. He's innocent of all these charges. This is the place we go to when we're falsely accused. One of the darkest seasons in my own life was when I had this myriad of attacks coming my way. And the flesh says, fight. The flesh says, defend yourself. The flesh says, attack. Bring them down. I even got two pastors involved in my life that I needed, and both pastors took opposite ends of what I should do. Now, when you get different opinions from pastors, you know you're in a precarious place. One pastor said, you need to fight. You need to fight. Count how many people are on your side and, and get that army together and fight it. And, you know, something was like, 
in me going, yeah, like that feels good. Like full pastor Mad Max mode. You know what I'm saying? Like, but then this other pastor said, you know what, Scott? You know what's true. You know what's really going on. Be a peacemaker. Submit to what you probably don't want to submit to, but you need to submit to. And take the higher road. Because this had to do with ministry. And this pastor said this. While you're pastoring this church, it's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And I tell you what. That's the pastor I went with. Not that I pitted these guys against each other and said, hey, can we all meet together? Because I want to see you guys fight it out. No. I respected the opinion of the first pastor. But I also just was able to just trust God to say, you know what? This second pastor and what he's saying is right. And once I made the decision to not fight and submit and just let those accusations be what they are, there was a peace. There was a peace. You want to know why? Because I have an advocate who's in heaven. And his name is Jesus, and he knows what's, what's going on. And I don't have to defend myself. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an unending battle if you seek to continue to defend yourself. Your defense has already been won by Jesus who knows you through and through. And Paul, you'll notice, seeks not the opportunity to defend himself as much as proclaim the gospel. And this is one of the most, seems contradictory. When you are facing these accusations, how you conduct yourself in a manner that somehow magnifies the gospel. And can I tell you, for the past 15 years, God has allowed those, that season of accusations to further the gospel in ways I never thought imaginable. You might be under attack right now. You might be falsely accused of something. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Stop defending yourself and seek for ways to uphold and magnify the gospel in the midst of your persecution. Because at the end of the day, what's worth defending? It's not you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because defending yourself is an unending battle. I, I literally went to counseling during the season of my life, and, and the person that just spoke to me just said, you don't have to defend yourself. There's always going to be people who want to poke holes at you and, and blame you and... And you know what? That is just, if you're going to continue to listen to the voice of your adversaries and your enemies and your accusers, that is a dead-end street, and you will never come out victorious. Praise God for the gospel and the true defender that is victorious overall. And all God's people said. Amen. So, the defense. So, let's unpack this. What does Paul do here? In this court where he's surrounded by all these people that don't like him, that want him gone literally from the earth, what's his defense? Notice it's this. Confident answers. And not just confident answers, cheerful answers. I think Paul is experiencing some Matthew 5 right now. Blessed are you when you're being reviled. <laughs> Blessed are you when you're being accused. Blessed are you when you are under scrutiny from people who hold no truth when it comes to just your situation. Look at verse 10. So when the governor, so the governor, basically Felix, hears the accusations, he turns to 
Paul and just gives him a nod, like, your turn. And I love what Paul does here. Look at this. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerly, cheerfully make my defense. No flattery. No flattery. You want to know why? Because Paul doesn't trifle in the realm of flattery. But he does come up with something honest to say. Now, it's not much. Notice what it says. Look at verse 10. I know that you have been a judge to this nation. What does that mean? Paul knows that there's always something good within a person to acknowledge. Everyone knows Felix is just a dirty rat. So he, what does he say? He says, hey, you know what? You've been faithful to your position in understanding the relationship between Jews and, and Romans, and I commend you for that. You're aware of stuff, but that's all he's got. Can I tell you about a time I sat down with my dad? So my dad, I love my dad. Pray for Ron. He's, he's got dementia, and uh, he's close to 77 years old. If you meet my dad, I think you're going to meet him probably about a month, month and a half. Ron Morgan, character. Um, he's on the liberal side of things politically. I'm a little bit right of center politically. So there, I just showed you some of my, my cards, right? And, you know, getting together with my family, sometimes when it comes to politics, as is probably the case in some of yours, you're just sitting there like, Donald Trump's a total jerk. Joe Biden's an idiot, right? And there's this constant like, and I just said to my dad, I said, Dad, I know you're not a fan of Trump. And this was a few years ago. I said, can you think of one nice thing to say about him? We're at lunch over tacos, my treat, you know, because that's, that's the way we roll in my house. Dad, I'll treat you to tacos, but that, that's, that's about it. So I won't take them anyplace else. But tacos, we're in. Dad, um, you're ranting about Donald Trump. Can you think of one positive thing to say about him? It took a little bit. But eventually he, he brought something up. And I said, and I'll do the same for, for Biden. You know what? I may not like Biden, but you know what? There's something. See, we can do this. You can come up with something. Someone is not so anti this or anti that that you can't think of somebody like, you know what? Hey, they love their kids. I don't know. Come up with something. You ever met an ugly baby? Has anyone ever met an ugly baby? <laughs> We've all, there's none at this church, so I'm talking about situations outside of this church. We only have cute babies here. You ever meet an ugly baby, and you go up to that baby, and you're kind of like shocked at first, and you're like, I should say something nice, and you go, well, isn't this a baby? Like, just, just say something like that, right? That's what I'm talking about. We don't have to trifle in this world of just being like, oh, man, I can't think of anything good to say or a positive to say. Just say something. And if it's like, well, what a baby, then, then that's it. Amen? Right? Like, so Paul is at least politically honest. He's polite. He just says, hey, you, you've been a governor <laughs> over the Jews and the Romans, and I think you've done a pretty decent job. So, okay, uh, now I cheerfully make my defense. So here we go. Paul is going to defend himself. Now, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, but a person who defends himself has a fool for a client. You ever heard that phrase? That's what's going on here, right? So people are like, oh, good luck. You're no Tertullus, but Paul, let's see what you got. And here's what I love. Paul magnificently defends himself. Why? Because he traffics in the truth. Write down the word truth. And it's not his truth, it is the truth. And we're going to talk about this here in a moment. What does he do? He shows how he's been loyal on three fronts. He's a loyal citizen to Rome, number one. He's a loyal citizen, son of 
Israel, point number two, and then he's a loyal servant of Jesus. Notice what Paul does here is he funnels the topic to the resurrection. Ladies and gentlemen, we would learn to do well from Paul's example when it comes to our lives and why we are here. You are not here on earth to defend yourself. You are here on earth to proclaim the mercies of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, this world does not exist for you. You, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. This is not about your kingdom. All those things are going to come to nothing. There's one king and one kingdom that will reign forever, and that is the kingdom of Christ. So what does Paul do as he does in so many moments in the book of Acts? He brings it down to what matters, and it's not him. It's Jesus. And in a court of people that are, are antagonistic and accusatorial, and just hate his guts, he's once again going to say, how can I get this conversation back on Jesus? Because ultimately, I'm a prisoner, and I'm going to go out of this world being a prisoner, but I'm a prisoner of Jesus, and these guys need to know what it is that binds me. And it's my passion for the Lord. Look what he says. Verse 11. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. You remember, Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem for one purpose and one purpose only. To bring a financial gift to the people that had suffered through famine. He, he arrives on the scene. He's got a bag full of money that he's going to bless the Jerusalem church. The money's from the Gentile believers, thus communicating unity between these two groups that are oftentimes at odds with each other. He's bringing it as, a, as an offering and a, and a sign of solidarity. He says, I come to town with a gift. I meet James and, and the church leaders, and I have no other alternative uh, motive than to worship. He says, I bring this 12 days ago, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Now, wherever Paul went, someone said he either causes a riot or revival. Write that down. That's good. Wherever Paul goes, he's either causing a riot or revival, but not in Jerusalem. He goes to no synagogue to stir up discussion. He goes to, to, to no common place to serve. He goes, and he's only there for a few days. He doesn't even have enough time to start a riot if that's really what he did. So he says, I went up, didn't have time to do this. Now can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me? No. So there's not a shred of evidence. If anything, I have proven that I am a citizen of Rome and I love my citizenship. My citizenship has done nothing but honor governors and kings and rulers. So where's the evidence? It's not there. Then he moves on, look at verse 14. Now he goes a little deeper. As far as, far as a, uh, a, a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes, interesting two words there, sect and Nazarene. There's so much with semantics that we got to talk about. Sometimes people use words to try to trigger you, and I think they're looking for Paul to get really upset over these words, right? Sect, as if it's some aberration of, of, of the orthodoxy he claims to be a part of. And Nazarene, remember what uh, Philip said? You know, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember when he said that? Because Nazareth is not a, a place of integrity. 
That's why they put it on the cross of Christ in, in his name, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth. So this was a term of derision. It was trying, they're trying to raise some sort of feelings from Paul, but he doesn't, he doesn't take the bait. He says in verse 14, but I admit to you that according to the way, so he changes the terminology, circle the word way, write the word way down in your notes. I love this because this is what the early church was known as, the way. You guys want to know why it was called the way? Anyone want to take a guess why it was called the way? Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And then he follows it by saying, no one can come to the Father but by me. So, Paul calls not the church the sect of the Nazarenes. He changes the conversation, which is always smart to do. You hear something from somebody, don't get all bent out of shape. Change the, change the, the dialogue. So let me tell you about the way that I'm a part of. Because I'm, I'm guilty of being part of this thing called the way. The way is a person, write this down, a person, a people, and a pattern. This is important. Because when we say you're part of the way, people are like, whoa, that sounds pretty definitive. And it is, because you can't help but take Jesus' teaching and go, wow, this guy... He means business. He doesn't say he is a way, a truth, a life, and leaving lots of other pathways open. He's clearly saying, I am exclusive. Ladies and gentlemen, how you answer two questions is going to be determinative on your future in eternity. Who is Jesus? And did he rise from the dead? Notice those two things Paul talks about here in this passage while he's on trial. The way is a person, capital P, his name is Jesus, John 14, 6. But those who belong to the way are also called the way. That we are people of the way. We're associated with this person, Jesus. But let me just tell you this. It also describes a pattern of life. That Jesus says there is a way you should walk. There's a way that leads to destruction, and there's a way that leads to life and prosperity. The Bible says there's no in-between. There's no third way. There's no fourth. There's two ways, right? You can lead a path of destruction or you lead a path of life. Let me just say, if you don't have Jesus, your pathway leads to destruction. Can, can I be bold enough to say that? Because your future is in the balance. You are here to hear a message today, and if Jesus was who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do, namely die on the cross, be buried, and rise from the dead, You've got to reckon with the way. But those of us who are part of the way as believers, let me encourage you with something. Live in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. Does your life reflect the way of Jesus? Because there's people that will profess, but they don't demonstrate this lifestyle. Paul is demonstrating a lifestyle even before those accusing him. Verse 14. So there's this way which they call a sect. I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and was written in the prophets. Can you say that about yourself, ladies and gentlemen? We have this thing called the Bible. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hopefully it's not a Bible connected to your cell phone or your tablet. I'm not saying that's a bad thing and you're going to hell because of it. But here's what you need to do. You need to, as a believer in Christ, invest in a Bible 
that doesn't give you notifications when someone posts something on Snapchat or some, you know, you need a Bible that you can study that's got commentary that you can take notes in and something that you can have for the, the remainder of your life. This Bible I have had for 30 plus years. I've had it rebound twice. There are notes, there's commentary, there's things I've written when God has worked and there's milestones that are written. I'm looking forward to one day dying. Yes, you heard that correct. I'm looking forward to dying and I'm looking forward to entrusting this to the lives of my kids so that they can go, how did, God wa- how did dad walk with God? What's the evidence of dad walking with God? Ladies and gentlemen, I am continually growing, not that I've arrived, but I continue to grow in my understanding of the word, and I'm not going to leave any bit out, even the parts I don't like. See, ladies and gentlemen, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this audience that's accusing Paul, they would kind of just take the Bible and go, we like this, we don't like this, we like this, we don't like this. Ladies and gentlemen, you are a follower of Jesus, and henceforth a follower of everything God has given to us through Jesus. Which means my life is in constant conformity to this when I like it and when I don't like it. Can you, like Paul says in verse 14, say, I believe everything that is written in accordance with the law and the prophets contained in this book. Can you with confidence before God say, I obey this, or do you just give it lip service? Because there's things this book says that I think some of you are like, yeah, did Jesus really say that? Did God really say that? I mean, there's stuff about ethics. There's stuff about money. There's stuff about sex. sex, There's stuff about politics. There's stuff about everything. This contains everything we need to know about life and godliness. The question is, are you obeying everything? Because I'm going to say something bold, and, and maybe you have an idea of what's going about, about ready to come out of my mouth. If you don't obey everything, you essentially obey nothing. We are a community of people who want to walk in the truth. I am a pastor who wants to take the truth, and it's not my truth. My truth is Junk. God's truth is everything that's going to unpack things that I think causes us to wrestle, causes us to think, am I going to choose my will or am I going to choose God's will? If there are things that are not in alignment with my life according to God's word and I claim to obey God in all things, I'm a liar. James, 1 John chapter 1. You say you love the truth, but yet you traffic in darkness the love of God is not in you. Ladies and gentlemen, I say that partly out of conviction, but I'm also saying it out of a heart of compassion. Because who else is going to hold our feet to the fire? Who else is going to be that bad idea, bro, in your life? You guys know that, right? We all need bad idea people in our life. When you do something, they sit there and go, bad idea, bro. Who is that? Who is that? God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, believe everything. I believe all 66 books, Genesis Revelation, are given to us by God. And every word is inspired by God and given to us by the Holy Spirit who has moved through 40 different authors to give us exactly God's heart, his mind, his will, and it is to direct the course of our life every single day. 
And the moment we're out of sync with walking in, in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus, may the Holy Spirit convict us, may the Word correct us, and may there pe be people in our lives with compassion encourage us to do what's right. Verse 15, And having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, there's coming a certain future judgment. There's a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. And in view of all this, you guys, my conscience is clean. It is blameless. I love that confidence. This is a man who's so dialed in with the spirit before God. He's just saying, I'm just doing what he wants me to do. This has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with him. Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms. And here's the reason, right? I came to bring a gift. And they found me and... Not only did I bring a gift, but I jump into this Nazarite vow with four guys I have to pay for their vows. I have done nothing wrong. And, and if I have, where are those that are going to accuse me? Notice the Asian Jews are not there. They're the ones bringing the charges. And Paul says, where are they? Can I, can I just tell you something right now? Anonymous notes are not worth reading. Anonymous scathing critiques are not worth paying attention to. So back before social media, yes, young people, there was a day. People would send letters. And church and pastors get letters from people, and sometimes they're just, if you get a letter as a pastor, nine times out of ten, it's a nasty letter. And nine times out of ten, there's usually not a name associated with the letter. As a pastor, early on, I didn't get a lot of hate mail, but I got some. And you know what I did as soon as I opened it? I looked to see if there was a name at the end. And if there was no name attached to it, whoosh, rip it up, throw it away. How we need to protect our hearts when it comes to people that want to criticize us and not put their names to it. I knew of another pastor who said he kept a book and when you came with something against another person, he would say, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to write down what your issue is with this person, and I want you to sign your name by it. So that when I bring it up with them, I know I can show them proof of who brought it to me. No one ever put in their complaint. <laughs> if you can't attach your name to something that you feel strongly about, it's more about you than it is the person you're trying to attack. I have a drawer at home filled with notes and letters and cards from people that attach their names and their words of encouragement and cheerfulness and confidence and affirmation and confirmation. That's what I fill my drawer with. But if there's a letter that comes in unannounced, if you, you submit a card and there's no name to it, guess where it goes? Trash. Can, can I just be bold and say, I love you enough and I hope you love me enough to attach a name to it and come to me with constructive criticism, constructive feedback, something. But the moment you don't put your name to it, this is more about you than it is about me. And praise God, we don't get too many cards like that. Thank you, church. And don't start today, all right? Some of you are like, you said something offensive to me. Because you know why? You don't want that just, you read a note and you don't know who it's from. You know how that, long that lingers on your heart? Can I just be, well, no one wants that. No one wants that. Even when it comes to bad reviews for like Sozo Coffee, so many times we just, oh, I couldn't appease this person. You know what? We got so many more people that love us. I'm not going to pay attention to the haters. 
that sounds like a Taylor Swift move, doesn't it? She, does, she doesn't pay attention to her haters. And How many Swifties are out there? Just raise your hand. We, we still love you. Okay, we still love you. Five minutes. Okay, here we go. So um, here's what Paul does. Look at verse 18. So uh, I'm, I'm without excuse, right? Uh, there's, I'm guilty. I'm not guilty. No one's here to bring charges. And then Louise says in verse 21, we'll land a plane with this. But there is one thing I'm guilty of, and I love this. So if you're going to be guilty in anything, be guilty in doing good. Be guilty in promoting the gospel. Be guilty in talking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? He says, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. This is really the really, Felix, this is why we're here. There's a theological disagreement. I'm bringing to the table this truth. Jesus is alive. And now you have to reckon with the person of Jesus, Three things, application, and we'll continue next week. Here they are. How is Paul a loyal servant of Christ? Because ultimately, this is what matters at the end of the day. Are you a loyal servant of Jesus? Paul is faithful to the scripture. He's free in his conscience. And he's firm on the resurrection. So we've already really talked through this. Faithful to scripture. He goes basically in front of the Pharisees, Sadducees. If anyone is just unwavering when it comes to the whole counsel of the word of God, it's me. These guys piecemeal it. I am faithful to the entire, I believe everything written in it. And because I'm faithful to everything written in it, I believe everything in it, it points to Jesus being the promised one. You guys don't know, your Bible has two parts. They're called the Old, Old Testament and Old Testament. Simply put, promises made. New Testament, simply put, promises kept. Two-thirds of your Bible speak to the coming Messiah. One-third of the Bible, the New Testament, are all the promises fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 300 of them. Who is Jesus how you answer that determines your future judgment. Is he who he said he is? Did he do what he said he was going to do? Paul, testifying before these, is free in his conscience because he is being truthful before God and with what he's sharing. He is blameless because he is not only standing before God, but he doesn't want to lead anyone in his fear of existence astray. He's not trifling in conspiracies. He's trifling in the truth. Which leads to this last point. And this is the point that really people get ticked off about. Are you firm on the resurrection? Paul funnels every conversation back to this. Because if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, we should be at home watching football or golf or something. Amen? But if the resurrection did happen, you have to account for that. What does that mean for me? So now Felix, Ananias, Tertullus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are once again hearing this message of the resurrection. How will they respond? That's next week's topic. Read ahead if you dare. But how Felix responds is scary. I'll leave it at that. How do you respond today? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life?
Is he the resurrection and the life? Is what Jesus said and did, what he, does it matter? How much does that bear upon your life? Ladies and gentlemen, don't leave here without answering these two questions. Who is Jesus and did he rise from the dead? Because your future judgment hangs on that. I can stand here with a clear conscience before God and go, I have come to believe in him who laid down his life for me and now there's no condemnation for me because I am free, I am acquitted in Christ Jesus and now I have an advocate for all eternity and his name is Jesus. Can you say the same about yourself? What peace, what confidence, what calm, what cheerfulness comes to the heart of those who are thoroughly known and loved by God, accepted because of Jesus, and now walk in that manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And God just says, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray the same for you today. And all God's people said, let's stand, let's pray. And you're going to mix it up with all the small group leaders. Our goal is to beef up these groups, for you to get involved, for you to, to, to be involved with people that love you and that are for you. And just want to see the image of Christ, the life of Christ formed in you. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for time to connect. Thank you for time to sing. Thank you for time to pray. Thank you for time to spend looking at your word and, and being encouraged by a guy like Paul. Lord, what a reminder for us that if you're for us, who could be against us? Lord, there's nothing in this world, there's no one in this world that speaks the words of life and hope like you do. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that you're, you're always with us and you'll ne neither leave us or forsake us. You're faithful to the end. Thank you for such constant love. Lord, thank you for the gathering of your people. Continue to work in our hearts. Bring to memory the truths that we've, we've, we've talked about this morning. And may we live our lives today and forever for your glory. May we walk in that manner worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. You're, you've called us to be a people of holiness and righteousness and purity. May we walk in that fashion, reflecting the, the, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you again, God, for today for your love for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day, you guys. We'll see you soon.